Welcome to The Third Wheel, Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast series exploring all things ESG. I'm Tim Stutt, Corporate Partner and Australian Lead for ESG. My co-host Mel Debenham is a partner in our national environment and planning practice and an expert on business critical environment planning heritage and native title regulation. Although given we're up to episode 38 now, I feel like I could probably abridge that for future future episodes. (laughs) Don't do that, Tim. Um, It's nice to have someone, you know, float your boat. Um, But great to be back on the wheel with you again. It's been a while since uh, we've co-hosted an episode and this time debriefing on COP28 which concluded last week. Um, I must admit I'm feeling a bit flat even though COP went into extra time in relation to the fossil fuel transition but I know this conversation um, will reignite the spark. Um, Before we go into any detail as to the conference that was, uh, if you'd like a refresher on the lead up and expectations to this year's conference I recommend that you hit rewind and have a listen to a recent previous episode, number 35, which Tim recorded on the eve of COP28 with our colleagues, Carolyn Pugsley and Lewis McDonald. Suffice to say, the hopes were high for COP28, but I think the expectations themselves were probably a little bit more modest. Um, Discussions going in focused around delivering loss and damage funding, unlocking climate finance and maximising momentum on mitigation, including pushing for a global deal to dramatically boost renewable energy efficiency as well. Today, to help us debrief, we're delighted to be welcoming back to the third wheel, Silke Goldberg. Silke is a partner specialising in energy law, but she is also our, the chair of our global ESG leadership team and global head of the firm's climate change practice as well. Welcome, Silke. Hello, Tim and Mel. It's great to be back. And uh, I look forward to discussing all things COP28 and, uh, uh, well, really what the future might bring uh, in the whole area of climate change and transition, loss and damage. Quite a lot of things happened at COP28, so um, very keen to dive into the detail with you. I can't think of anyone better placed uh, to talk us through them, given your energy law hat, your ESG hat and your climate change hat and the fact that you were over there. So as Mel mentioned earlier, um, we spoke to Lewis just as he was about to head off to Dubai, where he was speaking at the Sustainable Innovation Forum. One of the points that Lewis sort of talked us through was regulatory technology, which is the supporting regulation to uh, help sustain and build investment for the purposes of the energy transition. Silke, you were you were leading our delegation over to Dubai. Before we get into the outcomes of COP28, what were your overall impressions of the COP? How was the atmosphere? Hey, COP, every COP is different. So COP26 in Glasgow would have been very different to COP28 in, in Dubai. Dubai does everything at a grand scale. So the uh, innovation zone was, my overall impression is vast and busy. So uh, it was really quite, it was really quite big. You had several tenth stalls the size of football fields, which in turn would then host the energy transition, um, uh, what do you call it, stall, not stall, sort of area, the climate finance area in the green zone and the innovation zone. 
So really sort of done on a really very big, um, in, in a really big way. And in part, the green zone felt certainly like a, a trade fair. So companies coming, sort of showing how they were contributing to um, the energy transition, how there were sort of a lot of banks coming and sort of uh, um, demonstrating how they were supporting um, uh, well, Paris Agreement projects to keep the, the global war, global warming at 1.5 degrees. So that was sort of really busy and interesting. The interesting part was that you had a lot of talks on topics. So you had um, companies discussing what is the most efficient ways to to run batteries, um, what is the best way to structure a particular a particular transaction from a finance perspective, what role does nuclear play. So all of the big discussions that you had in the blue zone were also be taken were also taking place in the green zone, and uh, with quite a lot of um, let's say active floor participation. Mm-hmm. Blue Zone was very regulated this year, so it was harder to come in, but the HSF delegation was lucky enough to have two people with Blue Zone tickets, so they uh, they got up uh, very close with the governmental negotiations as well. I think we'll hear a little bit about them in a moment when we talk through some of the themes coming through there. HSF is um, obviously a... a um, enthusiastic strategic partner of the Sustainable Innovation Forum, which sort of runs alongside COP as a a forum for businesses to connect around climate change action. Tell us about your time on stage at the Sustainable Innovation Forum, where I believe you were talking about carbon markets and the important role of carbon markets. Um, There's obviously a lot happening in this space with carbon credits and voluntary carbon markets facing intense scrutiny, but also a lot of optimism and expectation around them as well to help support decarbonisation. That's right, Tim. And I think carbon markets do have a huge role to play in decarbonisation and basically into attributing responsibility for the environment. So the, the whole idea is that if you own a piece of a carbon credit, really, if you own, therefore, a piece of the environment, you're more likely to care about it. So that's the sort of economic theory that stands behind emission trading and carbon credits. Um, the Paris Agreement devotes an entire article to the role of carbon credits in the market and in the market between private parties, between states. Um, Unfortunately, um, whilst I think everybody at COP28 recognised the importance of carbon markets, there was a lot of talk about it. What COP28 failed to do was to agree the detailed rule book. So there is continued uncertainty in relation to carbon pricing, um, which is a bit of a problem because we see a huge amount of interest from um, private capital from companies all around the world who want to invest in offsets in carbon credits or who have particular projects that might be eligible for carbon credits. But in the absence of a clear rule book, um, there's a bit of a regulatory vacuum that links back perhaps to the discussion that you had with Lewis about the role of regulation here. Um, and that is a bit of a problem. So, But the interest in this in the innovation zone where we were, was massive. And the fact that it was so high on the agenda as well, originally in the blue zone in COP28, the governments also shows that there's an understanding that something needs to happen in relation to carbon markets. It was a real shame, Silka, um, that there wasn't further progress in that regard, because um, I know from an Australian perspective, we've had uh, a lot of reform um, in the climate Mm -hmm. space and um, 
our regime that applies to the biggest emitters now has a, a downward inflection with baselines reducing year on year. Um, and obviously, the role of an international carbon market is going to be increasingly important in that context over time. So um, we were looking on um, with great anticipation um, to see whether the rule book may uh, make some progress this year, but we'll have to look to COP29 in, in that regard. Perhaps um, we can zoom out now to some of the headlines over the course of the conference. Um, as listeners will know, COP28 was a considered um, was considered a stock take on global climate mm -hmm. action. And ahead of the conference, you spoke about the focus being on four paradigm shifts. So let's start with the first two, as they're undoubtedly linked. First, climate finance. There were many pledges announced over the course of the conference. I think 80 billion worth in the first five days. Um, but the biggie to further facilitate climate finance was the UAE announcement of 30 of a $30 billion climate fund called Altera to invest in climate-friendly projects across the globe. Some of this will also focus on tackling deforestation or projects driving energy transition. And then the second paradigm shift, which is fast-tracking the energy transition and emissions reduction. Um, so this was the reason that um, the conference extended that additional 24 hours, so that final language being agreed on transitioning away from fossil fuels, um, bringing fossil fuels into the almost 30-year climate treaty for the first time. Um, so, Silka, your, your views on those two paradigm shifts, where did we land? So you've picked up sort of some of the big ideas or the big topics already. So the focus on more um, projects for energy transition, more renewable energy was very high on the agenda. So the European Union launched a global pledge on renewables and energy efficiency together with the COP28 presidency, and there were 118 countries who signed up to this. And that looking at how the European Union evaluated COP28, that was seen as a very big statement, as a very big um, achievement by the European Union who had the lead in that regard. And um, people who are countries who signed up to this global pledge commit to um, working to triple the global installed capacity of renewable energy and also at the same time to double the rate of uh, global energy efficiency improvements by 2030. Um, Obviously, sort of every bit helps. 118 countries is quite a lot. However, it's, it has been noted that whilst China and India were supportive of this idea and of this overall um, objective, they have not actually signed the pledge. Other things we've seen in this regard were Kenya, Denmark, Germany and the UAE, together with um, the International Renewable Energy Agency, um, launched um, something already back in September, the um, a fund that is able to uh, offer ultimately 600 billion in cash to African countries looking to develop in particular um, uh, wind and solar projects. So there's a lot happening in particular in the energy transition space. Nuclear was a big topic and that was also mm -hmm. something that we saw not only in the blue zone in the negotiations, but it was definitely also present in the green zone and in the innovation zone um, where many countries and companies represented um, various technological ideas leading from small reactors to sort of like structural ideas as to how to finance nuclear and that was very much present um, at COP28 as well. 
also been a cooling pledge. Um, 60 countries coming together to try and reduce the um, impact um, of the cooling sector. We often talk about the energy generation, but the cooling sector also plays a huge role. And um, also 50 oil and gas companies, um, which together represent roughly half of the global production, have um, committed to this pledge as well and to and have added that they want to reach near zero methane emissions and to end routine flaring by 2030. And this is really huge because very often in the climate world, we talk a lot about CO2, but methane sort of, it mm. has a massive impact. And um, it was very good to see that there is a clear commitment to methane reduction this time. Mm. So quite a bit happening. Uh, I think we've covered most, well, a lot in finance and energy transition. I wouldn't even say most in that there was a whole bunch of different discussions uh, going on. Uh, and we might move to the, the next couple of paradigm shifts as well. And, and Mel, just to put you on notice, uh, we'll, we'll pass to you for your views on some of this at the end as well. But the third paradigm um shift uh, which we've talked about is nature, people and lives at the heart of climate action. And then the fourth is just transition, which we've talked about a few times on the third wheel. Um, COP28 was um, notable in respect of the, um, the global food systems declaration, and it was sort of seen as an important move towards agricultural adaption, very relevant for Australia. Um, what were your highlights though across the broader nature, people, and lives and just transition spaces? I think it's fair to say that the whole, the way that we talk about the impact of humankind on, on the ecosystem in which we live has changed. It used to be a very, a reasonably narrow discussion about CO2, climate change, perhaps methane, but what I'm seeing increasingly is a focus on biodiversity. And obviously, there's a whole separate COP dealing with biodiversity. But that is starting to converge a bit more with sort of what is being discussed at the, at the climate COPs. So nature diversity as nature and biodiversity uh, takes up, I would say, a much bigger part of the policy space now. And people and companies are starting to think more in a more integrated way, which makes complete sense because you can't talk effectively about climate change, uh, which is one impact that we as humans have on, on the earth, without also considering what does that actually mean for nature? What does that mean for biodiversity? So I'm very happy to see that that sort of more joined up discussion is happening. Um, and we also see that actually reflected in what our clients come to discuss with us in relation to their biodiversity approach and um, agendas and uh, uh, actually sort of many Australian companies, European companies in this regard in particular. And so I'm quite, that is actually something that makes me quite hopeful. In relation to um, what you mentioned on food and agriculture, I think that will also continue to play a greater role in the years to come. Um, in particular, the president of COP28 made um, a clear statement to promise um, and that this COP would look after the transformation of food systems during the discussions. Um, I think that statement in and of itself was significant because, again, it had not previously been discussed, but the way that we do agriculture, the way that we produce food is so important, has an impact not only on CO2 or methane emissions, but also on biodiversity. So I think that's a very important link that's being brought out here. 
And again, it, that is the part of COP where I was really hopeful. There were parts of COP where I thought, oh my goodness, why can't we just, why can't people just agree on this? It's so obvious, like in the carbon markets, for peace. But this is actually something where I felt much more hopeful. Mm. And I, I think uh, very timely as today, as, as we're recording this, the Climate Change Authority has made some um, fairly um, direct and pointed statements around agriculture and climate change and um, uh, agriculture being an um, important area for future focus. Mel, I might pass to you for your thoughts. Well, Silka stole my thunder. Um, because <laughs> she tends to do that. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, and it will be, I mean, it'll be no surprise to both of you um, that I was really pleased as well to see a little bit more convergence around uh, nature and climate. Um, personally, it's been great frustration to me to be having these sort of very absolute and siloed conversations about what is sort of a, a, a global environment and, and you need to look at climate change through um, that sort of multi-aspect lens to get to the right space because um, we shouldn't be making decisions that will, um, you know, increase renewables penetration, for example, that are at the cost of our natural environment and nature. And, and I think sort of bringing those topics together um, will help enhance um, the global response. Um, I guess one aspect that we haven't touched on that would be remiss not to mention um, is around the loss and damage fund and obviously yeah. um, helping to strengthen resilience of those nations that are much more um, impacted immediately by climate change. So um, it I can I remember last year when we were thinking um, about the outcomes of COP27 and the loss and damage fund was really one of the highlights and it came right at the end of the conference. Um, well, this time uh, the progress made on the loss and damage fund was right at the beginning um, and I think that it's the first time that a substantive decision was made on day one of the conference. So um, it really did sort of set the scene, I think, for people thinking COP28 is going to be really productive. Um, but uh, as I understand it, more than $700 million to date um, has been pledged for the loss and damage fund. Um, it's the beginning of opera, operationalisation. That is a word that will twist my tongue every time, operationalisation of the loss and damage fund. Um, and obviously so much more work to to be done. Um, but it was just a great example of um, a reasonably short period of time that we've seen quite a lot of progress. Um, so again, something to um, give us all hope moving, looking forward now to COP29, that um, that is an example of being able to make action quickly and um, reach agreements. So hopefully we have more of that reaching agreement um, and operationalising in COP29. Um, I couldn't agree more. You see me violently nodding. You can't see me on the podcast. But yes, in complete <laughs> well, agreement. Now, now you've said it, everyone will know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there is so much more that we can cover. Um, but Silka, just interested in your final reflections um, or perhaps a little um, crystal ball gazing and predictions, um, particularly, you know, through the lawyer's lens. I, that's a very good question. Sort of, what is the role? Why sort of why we are caught? What what do we do? Sort of, what is our sort of role as lawyers in this regard? And I think 
lawyers, whether they're internal, in-house general counsel or external lawyers, have, have actually a very important role to play. Typically, lawyers are seen as risk managers, but we also help to develop climate strategy for companies, with companies. And as the whole climate um, and energy transition area gets regulated more and more, more disclosure obligations, I think we have a key role to ensure compliance. On the one hand, to support transactions, to develop new areas uh, of activity for companies and uh, to be there and give a, give a holding hand perhaps um, both in relation to business as usual, but also for strategic matters. Um, the legal industry as a whole, I think, is really has a vital role to play because we can help bridge gaps, we can help bring together agreements, and um, we can help companies and governance, uh, governments um, to um, uh, to prepare. And the loss and damage agreement is clearly one of those examples, which um, the fact that it was announced at the very beginning just showed how well prepared everybody was between the conferences. And I think here the, the legal teams um, in all different shapes and forms have a very important role to play. So, um, one last question, um, and it's a prediction for COP29. Will we see progress at the next conference on carbon markets? Yes or no? I would have to say yes, because if we don't, then that would be such a failure. So I'm hopeful and say yes. I'm hearing a binding guarantee from Silke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now that she's looking nervous, it might be a good point to uh, wrap up. <laughs> Actually looking confident, I would say. Uh, thank you very much for joining Mel and I to talk about uh, COP28 and, and giving us a bit of a debrief. We've Thanks obviously had... Me. We've obviously had a bumper year in the world of ESG and um, we've enjoyed discussing a number of the developments with our, our third wheel audience over the course of the year. And we're looking forward to returning in 2024 to share more insights and, and have more guests present to you or speak to you. Um, but before we leave for 2023, our third wheel closing tradition. Interesting fact from the world of ESG. Mel, you're going to tackle this one. Take it away. Um, well, you know, you, you've introduced 2024 and 2024 is an exciting year because it's an Olympics year um, and an Olympic year in Paris, no doubt. Um, so there have been um, for some time, um, you know, a pressing urgency to make the Olympics more sustainable and um, hopefully we'll see a bit more of action in that regard at the Paris Olympics in 2024 and they're really looking um, to lead the way for future Olympics. Um, but the International Olympic Committee in 2022 launched Climate Action Awards um, to support international and national Olympic committees and athletes in their efforts to manage carbon emissions and their environmental impact. And thought it was really interesting um, to see some of those examples. So World Sailing has been shortlisted for two IOC Climate Action Awards for implementing measures um, that are quite vast, really. Um, they've been working with manufacturers to address the impact of their equipment, delivering on a commitment for 100% of staff travelling to sailing world championships being via public transport um, and reducing reducing emissions from on-water support fleets. So next, they're looking at opportunities to introduce robotic race marks and reduce coach boat, boat numbers. Um, and it's, you know, 
little incentives like this um, replicated across the board that hopefully we'll see a much more sustainable Olympics moving forward. So that is the fun fact to close out a very fun third wheel year. So from Tim and I and all of our guests from Herbert Smith Freehills, thanks for listening. Uh, we wish you a safe holidays and look forward to joining you back on the wheel in 2024. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.